Warning. If you have a tendency to get the creepy crawlies, skip ahead by 30 seconds. You're in your home, working, cleaning, whatever, when you hear it. At first, it sounds far away, a tiny buzzing so faint that you're not even sure it's real. So you ignore it and you get back to your task. That's when the house flag dive bombs you. Where did it come from? Your windows aren't open. How did that thing get in? But that does not matter right now because this fly is attacking your head like it's got a target painted on it. So what do you say we turn the tables on our creepy crawly friends and instead of looking at them as pests, we invite them for dinner? From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. OXO wants to make sure your kitchen tools last. So, to simulate use over time, products are tested by robots in the cycle testing lab over and over and over again. And for engineer Noah Panelovich, there's beauty in a durable product. Every once in a while, there'll be times when all the sound syncs up, and you're like, whoa, like, that was amazing. Like, this is really, yeah. it's magical. Suddenly, like, everything's, like, dancing together. Find your kitchen groove. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Entomophagy. That's the proper term for eating insects. This is Elna Schutz, our reporter for the story. She spoke to us from her extremely noisy apartment. Somebody has decided to turn the street in front of my house into a racetrack. Uh, Where are you even going? Apologies to the editor. In South Africa. Insect eating isn't a strange practice in my country. Among South Africans, there is a rich culture and traditional knowledge about cooking and eating bugs. You have mopani worms and wapita caterpillars, to name a couple. They're normally harvested in the wild, then cleaned, boiled, salted and dried, or maybe fried. And you then eat them as a snack or as part of a meal, this being more prevalent in rural communities. And they're good for you. One study showed that pupeta caterpillars have over 50% protein content, whereas beef is generally somewhere around the 20% mark, and they have a much higher rate of vitamin C. Well, I'm not really a stranger to eating bugs. There was that whole chocolate-covered ant phase of the 1970s that I might not want to talk about, but I actually do like really crispy grasshoppers sprinkled over maybe a quesadilla or a taco. They're quite good. (laughs) Bridget, then maybe you won't be a hard sell on this, but I do have to say eating bugs is not normal for me. I grew up in the suburbs with very Western-style cooking, and before reporting this story, I had barely touched a worm unless it accidentally crawled into my kitchen, which is why I was fascinated by a new wave of insect eating entering the South African mainstream. So I'm eating the polenta fries. They're a beautiful sort of golden brown, very crunchy on the outside. They look quite spicy. Let's try this. 
I'm definitely tasting that nuttiness, that earthiness, almost meatiness, but not quite. Before we jump in, just a note of clarification. The words bug and insect are scientifically different. Bugs are technically a subgrouping of insects. They have particular mouths and wings and no teeth. There's also different stages of insects like lava and worm and pupa. We're going to be talking about a lot of different insects and bugs at different stages of their growth, but for simplicity's sake, I'm going to use some of those words interchangeably. That's just one of the many things I never thought I would learn in the process of reporting a story that is actually about food. So, Elna, where is this big boost of insect culinary enthusiasts? Where are they coming from? Well, there's this group of people, entrepreneurs, researchers, and scientists, who seem to recognize the wisdom in eating insects, and fully knowing it doesn't necessarily have Western appeal, they thought, what if we could get everyone to eat bugs? Enter Leah Besser. She's a food scientist in her 20s who is almost always followed around by her white fluffy dog. Frankie needs no convincing that bugs are delicious and will eat as many insect dog treats as she can get. We made some biscuits and yo, she actually cries when I take them out of the package. She's so excited about them. With Frankie in tow and usually dressed in simple, stylish neutrals and aviator sunglasses, Leah gives me the first impression of someone who could be a cool, young entrepreneur. She's relaxed and adventurous on the surface, but really quite focused and driven when it comes to her work. And you definitely need a bit of drive when you're doing something no one has done before. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This all starts eight years ago, when Leah decided to leave veterinary school. I really wanted to stay in the science field, but have sort of a creative element to it. And, you know, creating products, creating, you know, foods that's different to what we used to. So that's why I went into food science. Leah is a meat eater, but she grew up in a home of vegetarians. I've always wanted to look at alternatives and sort of relieve a lot of the pressure on current livestock farming. And insects struck me as a really interesting alternative. Not that I ever really ate insects. I just more wanted to investigate its potential. Well, Leah's got a different brain from mine because that's definitely not where I would start. Like me, Leah was aware, though, that some South Africans were already eating insects as protein. Yeah, I think for me that was actually the push. Um, when I started studying, I thought, like, People eat insects all the time. Like, why Why don't we know anything about it? And that's what led me down the road. She realized that there was a possibility we could use insects as another form of protein for everyone. Her goal became to make insect protein widely accessible. There's a lot of research on the nutritionals of insects and, and safety, but not really on creating insects as a functional ingredient and understanding how you can process it and bring it forward to... To the industry. The idea was to transform the insects into an ingredient, something practical and perhaps something that made them a little easier to swallow. But to figure that out, she needed some help. Leah approached her university department and told them what she wanted to do. 
It wasn't an easy ask. So it was really a challenge to try and bring it forward um, as a meat alternative, and specifically to an industry that doesn't consider it a food option. Not food for people, anyway. No one was working on insects at my university, except for on the animal feed side. So they put her in touch with an animal scientist called Dr. Elsha Peterse, who had some experience with farming insects. Elsha agreed to supervise Leah's research. And this gave Leah the chance to see if her idea would be possible and how to make it a reality. So I think it was more the challenge that excited me and, and really trying to overcome that both on the academic side where academia was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then very much on the consumer side where it was very similar response, <laughs> to be honest. Leah and her supervisor got to work. I was actually terrified because I had to help her farming uh, the insects and there was cockroaches and crickets and yeah, the black soldier fly larva, there were snails. Okay, now wait a minute. Leah, the, the person who is getting interested in the concept of really using bugs for food is squeamish of bugs. I know, it is quite ironic. It did take some getting used to. So she was looking at these different insects, like mealworms and crickets that were already being commercially farmed, usually for animal feed, and finding out how you can process them for human consumption, specifically in her research into Vienna sausages. <laughs> well, okay, Vienna sausages with bugs might not actually be a stretch. I think some people suspect that bugs are already in there. <laughs> Well, with the Vienna sausage test, she was looking at very particular important things. Viability, food safety, cost impact, and taste. So why didn't Leah just choose one of the insects that she already knew people were consuming in South Africa? Those kinds of insects wouldn't necessarily translate to a commercial application. Take the Mapani worm, for instance, which I mentioned earlier as one of the most popular edible insects in the region. They're fat and black with white and colorful bands and have both fluff and little spikes on them. They're relatively simple to harvest. You sort of shake the Mopani tree and capture them. But their eating habits make them very difficult to farm. This can be good as food and trade for smaller rural communities, but they're a lot harder to farm commercially at scale. In recent years, droughts and overharvesting has also put pressure on these natural supplies of the worms. So Leah had to admit that they'd be a tasty but not practical choice. They're really tasty, fatty and high in protein, but they're wild harvested. Um, and there's actually a risk of endangerment there. And then you just run into ecological issues as well, which is not something you can have if you want to scale up anything. So she's doing the tests, making little bug-filled Vienna sausages, and this is when one of these insects starts to stand out. The black soldier fly larva, the profile's perfect. Black soldier flies look like your standard little black fly. Very common, but very special in their larva stage. They're high in protein and fat and zinc and iron, which is what you want from a meat alternative, right? Like... And they also have a soft body, which makes them easy to process into a meat alternative. And yeah, they're farmed commercially, like they're farmed on scale. And the best part is that they can actually become sheep. Not to mention, they're not a pest to humans like houseflies. They don't spread diseases, they don't bite or sting. Before turning into flies, the black soldier larvae are clean 
and are very talented at composting waste. They only need about 10 to 15 days to mature, meaning you get a very quick turnover time without a big ecological footprint and without relying on particular conditions. They're wonder bugs. They're probably, in my opinion, like the most high-impact insect on the farming side. And apparently, they make great Vienna sausages. It took a lot of testing and different versions and was a challenging idea to get people on board for. But her final samples in the research study were a hit. The taste, texture and look was apparently just like meat, at least when you ate them quite fresh. And most people who tried them loved it even those that had no idea what was inside. So Leah published some research, graduated and got a great job, leaving black soldier fly larvae in the rear view. Don't worry, it's not the last we'll see of our little larvae. Long story short, the corporate life wasn't anything for Leah. The truth is, she missed the bugs. And a couple years later, she and her friend, John Lawrence, decided to re-enter the insect game. They started a business and named it Gourmet Grub. Someone said to us, why don't you look at an industry that needs a lot of impact? And he actually suggested the dairy industry. And at the time, we were like, oh my goodness, who would make a milk from insects? Like, that is so ridiculous. (laughs) But then we decided to try anyway, because we were like, you just never know. I mean, you can make milk from almonds. So, like, really, what's stopping you? Yeah, they make milk out of just about everything these days. Almond milk, there's rice milk, oat milk. I have never heard of bug milk. Yeah, it's really new. It was a strange idea, but the idea had a lot of promise. And in theory, insects, if they could be made into a dairy alternative, could have a lot of impact because of, you know, the farming being really sustainable, environmentally friendly, And insect milk would be more sustainable, more affordable, and more nutritious than other dairy alternatives. So it was just a matter of taking the concept and making it a reality, which was the challenge. First, Leah and her co-founder Jean needed some bugs. I'm hoping it's the black soldier flies. Not quite. Remember, black soldier flies weren't farmed for human consumption, so there was an issue with supply. So they detoured and investigated a few other bugs that were easier to get their hands on. They ordered crickets from Johannesburg. Crickets arrived in boxes alive, and they were like chirping, 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 chirping. I get this phone call from my mom at work, and she's like, Leah, I think a box has arrived for you because it's singing. (laughs) And she's like, this has got to stop. They tried farming mealworms themselves. You can just stack them basically in a cupboard or or wherever you want to do it. But you constantly have to separate the eggs from the worms and the worms from the beetles. So they're actually relatively easy or space efficient to farm, but very labor intensive and they get everywhere. So it's just too much. The best place they could find out of sight was in Jean's bedroom. So we basically moved all his clothes into one section of his cupboard and then started stacking these things with mealworms in his cupboard. We bought a little, like, um, heater thing to sort of make it nice and warm in there. It's actually ridiculous now that I think about it. And the worms in the cupboard worked for a little bit until Jean went on vacation. The one day I actually went to Mauritius on holiday and some of the mealworms made it to Mauritius with me. This is Jean, Leah's business partner. 
yeah, when I opened my um, suitcase, some of them were in my clothing, so they obviously escaped our farm every now and then. But yeah, it was fun. While they were figuring out how to farm the bugs, they were also learning how to cook them into a food. To make bug milk for the first time with no information about how one might go about it, you have to experiment. Okay, we're standing in the spot where it all started, I suppose. This is our family kitchen. That's Leah's mom, Ruth. She's standing in the family kitchen, otherwise known as Leah's first product development lab. Every time she'd come home, we'd like try and clean the kitchen so she wouldn't see that we had been working with insects and using her blender and like her pots and her pans and all these different things. And I'll come home and the kitchen looks fantastic. I'll start preparing dinner that night and I'll find a little worm tucked in neatly behind the sink and I'll know they've been up to no good. So they always get caught out. <laughs> as hard as they try and hide it from me, they get caught out. Getting caught or not, Leah and Jean tweaked and tested, trying to make a prototype milk or dairy alternative. What kind of bug did they end up using? Well, they decided against the crickets because they were expensive and difficult to find, not to mention loud. And the mealworms didn't work out either because they were so labor-intensive and escape artists. So Leah went back to her first love, the black soldier fly larvae. She tracked down the local farm that could produce them for her, and voila, supply issues solved. Ah, the fly larva is back. So how would you turn that into milk, though? That's a good question, but I can only give you a part of the answer. It starts with fasting or starving the little larvae so that they're not digesting anything themselves. So we take the whole larva... We fast them and then we blanch them. Um, that is for obviously safety and also to, to kill them. So much like you would kill lobster in boiling water, that's how we kill the, the insects. And then that's where the propriety information starts. So we basically take the whole larva and through a process that we've developed, we create a, a dairy alternative. We have to skip over some details here, because even though it started in a humble kitchen, the way the milk is prepared is under intellectual property protection. I wasn't even allowed to visit the processing plant they now use. I think it's safe to assume that the bugs get liquefied in some way, and there are various processes to guarantee the food safety and perfect the taste and whatnot. These were the things Leah and John had to learn and keep tweaking in trying to make that first prototype milk back in Leah's mother's kitchen. We had made the milk to a point where it was acceptable, so it wasn't the perfect product, but it was sort of enough to give us an idea that it could be done. It worked, but it was terribly messy. It had a short shelf life of only two days or so, was dark in colour and didn't come with the best aftertaste. At this stage, all they knew was that they had a basic milk and it was enough to move their development experiments to more appropriate university premises to do the processing and testing. They gave the milk its name, Intomilk. That's into from ancient Greek intomum, meaning insect. Intomilk. I like the ring of it. Yeah, right? And the next step was to get it out there. They had to get people to try it. 
Now, if you're like me, you probably wouldn't get excited about someone putting a glass of white liquid in front of you and saying, this is bug milk, drink up. Which is why what Leah did next is so clever. She took a risk. Leah applied to one of South Africa's biggest design events, the Design Indaba, as one of their emerging creatives. This is a big honor and has launched some really important careers. Leah was worried she'd have a hard time trying to convince people to drink an insect milk. So instead, she pitched Design Indaba something else, an ice cream out of insects. People actually want to try it because they're like, this is fascinating, this is weird, this is different. Like, But ice cream, you know, how can you go wrong with ice cream? The milk wasn't even fully developed yet. Ice cream sounds great, but there was no ice cream. Suddenly, they only had a few weeks left to make this idea a reality. She bought a little ice cream maker online and spent lots of time in the university lab adjusting the recipe. But this wasn't just about adding a bit more chocolate or honey. All of those secret processes I mentioned earlier in making the intermilk actually affect the texture and other really important factors. Color, I think, is a big one. If you don't process them correctly, if you get insects that aren't fed on the correct food, the color can come out really dark, which is super undesirable. So that was one of the biggest thing. And then the smell as well, which is a big contributor from the feed. And smell then becomes taste, which you can taste in the ice cream. It's not just the processing, but the farming that influenced their success and made it that much more difficult. It was a mission to, to get it right. And also a lot of the things were out of our hands. It was from the farming side. So we had to then go back to the farmers and be like, OK, we need you to please, please, please change this. The clock was ticking, the event was near, and they continued to experiment, trying this and trying that. We messed up so many times. We had to just keep redoing it and redoing it and redoing it. Even the night before the design and Darbo, up until like four o'clock that morning, we were still making ice cream. Even though the flavor profile hadn't gone through all of the tests a food scientist like Leah would have liked, they made their samples and took them to the festival. When I look back now, I can't believe we fed it to people, but it's okay. People loved it at the time. I guess they had no point of reference. Even what Leah now considers to be a poor prototype seemed to win people over, and it really solidified Leah's determination that ice cream might be the key to convincing people to eat bugs. So once we did the design in Darbo, there was like a massive media frenzy because there were people like, oh my goodness, there's this company making ice cream from insects. So that was really exciting for us. This got them mentioned internationally, from the BBC to health.com. The media interest and good reactions really helped push the team along. That, I think, solidified um, our concept and that set us forward on our journey with the company. They received a grant to research and validate the milk properly, which is still underway up till today. But in the meantime, Leah continued on her quest to make delicious insect food and to see if she could win people over on the idea of eating insects, including me. After the break, we find out what exactly goes into making insect ice cream so delicious. And Elna gets her first taste. 
It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Grain Quiz. And today, I have somebody very special with me. It's video producer Connor Olmstead, and he's on the line with me. Hey, Connor. Hi, Bridget. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to do a Bob's Red Mill Quiz. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh, no one better. Okay, so here in Boston, we live pretty close to Plymouth, where the pilgrims, you know, they first hit that big rock. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask you about the first Thanksgiving. What kind of pie do you think that they ate at Plymouth back in 1621? Was it pumpkin pie, turkey pie, pecan pie, or fish pie? Ooh, okay. Uh, fish pie is just too weird to not be the answer. So I think that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go with fish pie. You know, that would have been my guess too, but it turns out they didn't actually have any pies because they didn't have access to wheat at that time. But today, we have Bob's Red Mill organic all-purpose flour, which is just what they were missing back in 1621 to bake those amazing pies, including fish pie. For more information and a ton of delicious recipes, go to bobsredmill.com. Is your kitchen faucet smart? Well, the Sensate faucet with Color Connect is. Your voice commands it to turn on and off. You can have it dispense a precise volume of water from a cup to gallons or a preset amount for your water bottle or coffee pot, all hands-free. The Sensate Smart Faucet is compatible with Amazon Alexa, Google Home, and Apple HomeKit. And the Color Connect app lets you monitor water usage by the week, month, or year. It also tells you if there's a leak. You tell that faucet what to do. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. A good tool can make experimenting in the kitchen fun. That's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. It takes sous vide cooking to the next level. I asked my test kitchen colleagues what they do with theirs. I actually sous vide sous vide a turkey once. I think vegetables can really benefit from it too. So you can also sous vide starburst candy and you can like arrange the color, sous vide it, and then they all kind of melt into one another and you can make jewelry with it. I actually have a sous vide starburst necklace at my desk. Jewel, perfect starburst necklaces every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. America's Test Kitchen Kids just launched a cooking club for young chefs. Now stay tuned at the end of this episode for a preview of our new subscription box program, The Young Chefs Club, plus a discount code. Before the break, we were with journalist Elna Schutz. She found out how a company in Cape Town, South Africa, Gourmet Grub, made a milk called Intamilk out of black soldier fly larva. This is all part of Leah's mission to make insect food something that can be made commercially viable and accessible to more people as a protein alternative. They had that initial success at the design in Daba, enough to get them a research grant and fully develop a milk product that could be commercialized in the future. But in the meantime, they wanted to continue to improve their Ento milk. Right. You mentioned there were some issues they had with color, aftertaste, shelf life. Right. And that was the next big hurdle. You may remember that this wasn't just an issue of processing, cooking and flavoring, but of farming. At the time, Leah was working with farmers that grew the bugs for animal feed principally. 
one of the great positives about that is that they can consume agricultural waste, making this very environmentally friendly. Well, that's a good thing if you're feeding livestock, but it's not really ideal for human consumption. Exactly. And while Leah could do her bit from the food science and development side, she isn't a farmer. Well, at least not outside of her apartment. <laughs> exactly. But thankfully, a few months later, she met Max. I've started working with Leah, I'd say, in September last year. But yeah, behind that, I've been working with black soldier flies for the past 11 years already. This is Max Breitensteiner, who farms the majority of the larvae that Leah uses now. When it comes to insects, he is hands down the most enthusiastic person I have ever met in my life. Max has been farming this larvae for feed and was quite interested in the possibility of using it for food. We drove out to his farm in Malmesbury, which is this beautifully peaceful spot in the countryside, about an hour outside of Cape Town. There are chickens roaming and birds chirping and Max in his hardy matching blue jeans and shirt, looking exactly the way I would expect a farmer to. But his livestock doesn't roam the fields. They fit into just one little brick building, not much bigger than your average living room. So we've just walked around the corner and I see a lot of wriggling. <laughs> you can actually hear them if you put the mic there. I don't know if you can hear it on there. I can. Okay, that's excellent. Inside the building, you can imagine a bigger version of the little farm Leah and Jean had created in his cupboard. There's containers for different stages of the life cycle, from tiny insects that look like flour to the bigger squirming larvae. Max is constantly working to keep the larvae's containers clean as they grow and to feed them. Basically, these two ingredients... So the one is a formulated animal feed. It's a pellet. If you give it a smell, you can pick up. There's almost like a strawberry note oh, to it. Oh, goodness. There's almost like, like an interesting strawberry note to it. And we find that that actually carries on through the larvae as they're eating. So between that and wheat bran and water, we have all of the components that we need to grow those larvae. Super big. Wheat bran like the cereal. Yeah. What the insects are eating is crucial because they absorb flavonoids or flavor profiles into the protein and fat in their bodies. And that will come through into how they taste. We don't really know how exactly this works, especially because up until now, the main consumer of black soldier fly larvae was other animals. For instance, Max says that the larvae hyperaccumulate lipids, which are oily or fatty molecules. That means that when you feed them certain things, they don't digest and turn them into other kinds of fatty acids, but actually retain and absorb them in their original state, which means you may taste it. So, for example, if I were to feed them a big bucket of strawberries, right, or a big bucket of chilies, right, on the other end, they taste spicy or they taste a little bit more like chilies, right? But for Leah, the very particular flavor profile that they were going for was in fact an absence of flavor. We were looking for as neutral of a profile as possible, something that I guess had the closest to no flavor as possible. 
which is actually what we've achieved. It's not just what you feed them, but how you take care of the larvae that matters too. For instance, if the larvae are overcrowded or the humidity is wrong, they produce a type of stress chemical called ammonia. Max says this is similar to what other animal meat would taste like if it isn't prepared correctly after slaughter. For the insects, the ammonia doesn't get released, but actually stays in their bodies, making them taste awful. And another thing, the timing really matters, because the age of the larvae affects the color and, again, the taste. You know, the older they get, the, the unsaturated fat profile increases, so you start getting more of your omegas, which are quite fishy. Eating insects aside, I can tell you the one thing that I'm pretty sure nobody wants is fishy ice cream. Definitely. I consider myself an adventurous eater, but even I wouldn't get on board with that trend. Working with Max and his farming knowledge, Leah was able to find a system that works just right to give her happy, good-tasting, or rather neutral-tasting insects. They tested different ages and found the sweet spot, around 10 to 15 days. They now have that strawberry-like feed that gives them a hint of the fruit, but a relatively neutral taste. So the larvae eat and grow and reproduce, and every few weeks, Leah fetches them and returns to Cape Town to process the larvae. And it seems like Leah has a lot of the details figured out, at least the big picture stuff. What's next? Well, scaling. More products, varied implementation beyond dairy. Leah and her team hope to have a global and especially African impact with their products that is versatile and affordable for the ordinary consumer and something that can make an impact on low-income communities. I think for me personally, what I really want to do with the company is sort of bring insects forward in, in an innovative way and sort of demonstrate that the versatility of using insects and sort of inspire other people to do the same. But ultimately, to make a big impact, Leah needs people to want her product. Well, wouldn't that be kind of easy given the history that you mentioned of traditional insect eating in that country? Yes and no. If you are used to the practice, perhaps because you live and grew up in more rural areas where insect harvesting occurs most, the idea of insect eating may be very normal to you. But that doesn't mean that you'll get on board with Leah's scaled-up commercial products, because it is likely a different insect in a different form from what you're familiar with. On the other hand, if you haven't had much exposure to this at all, the very idea could seem a bit strange and gross to you. Both these groups would need convincing to come on board. And here we come back to one of Leah's biggest challenges that has followed her throughout her journey, the aversion barrier. That's a mindset that insects will be ick just on the basis that they're insects. Leah says that when she pitches her concept to groups, she sees this at play. And a lot of people will come up and they, they're so curious and they don't want to try it. They're just like, please just tell me. Like, they want to know what it tastes like without having to taste it. A lot of people end up trying it and they're just amazed that it's not what they expect because most people have this expectation of insects even though they've never eaten it. So I always ask them, what did you expect, like, without having any baseline? And a lot of people expect it to taste gross, not from 
any experience just because they have this idea that it should taste gross. And that's what we need to change, I think. So they realized in order to change the mindset of the public, they had to prove themselves. So we just thought, let's show people what you can do and let's bring in different insects and let's collaborate with other people working with insects and sort of create a platform for people to come and try it and change their mindset. They hired a chef, developed some recipes and opened up the insect experience in June this year. They focus on dishes where the insects are incorporated and not superficially obvious. So you just rolled something out of the fridge that looks not that appetizing. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the dough. I make it every day, I make it fresh. That's insect experience chef Mario Barnard. And then what sauce is going on to the pasta? Um, so it's basil pesto. Nice and simple, yeah, and fresh tomatoes and some microgreens. Now, I'm a serious journalist and I'm committed to the story, so I knew I needed to dig into some bugs myself. I specifically invited my friend Rotendo for dinner because she does have experience with insect eating, specifically over holidays with her grandmother in Zimbabwe where she was born. So there are two insects that we ate quite a bit. One was dragonflies, but it was so exciting as kids because they would fly in into the main house, you turn off the lights and then they, you just start catching them because they're just everywhere. And then we'd cook them and then eat them. Now, Rotendo might not eat bugs ordinarily in her everyday life, but this really shows you how much of this aversion is ultimately all in our minds. Rotendo grew up with eating some insects, but even she says others, like cockroaches, would brought her out because she's scared of them. You and I only think insect eating is strange because it hasn't been a normalized part of our cuisine. Yeah, and what we take for granted might be really strange to other people. I mean, who was the first person to look at a lobster and go, that looks good? Right, and with all of that in mind, we tucked into the tagliatelle and the croquettes. Dig in. So I have the pasta with a, a basil pesto, a little bit of fresh tomatoes, microgreens, and it tastes like pasta, obviously. Honestly, the only difference is the texture is a little bit um, harder and, and thicker, more like whole wheat pasta. Yeah. The pasta was delicious. It had a very traditional flavor profile, just that it was made of insects. So it was easy to wrap my head around it. And the croquettes were good too. And how about the big star of the show, the ice cream? Well, after all of this buildup, I finally got to taste it. And I realize now that maybe we should have started with dessert. So we've both chosen um, chocolate. What's your first impression? It's divine. Oh, I love chocolate, so you can throw as many bugs in here as possible. I'll still just taste the chocolate. <laughs> really delicious. Like, very, very good. This is the one thing today that I would definitely come back for. But it is ice cream. So it sounds like you're coming on board now for all of this insect eating, Elna. <laughs> That's the funny thing here, Bridget. I had come up with the story. I put myself into this position. After speaking to everyone and seeing how careful and safe the farming process is, I knew pretty much every good reason why insects should be a normal part of our eating habits. 
It's a good protein source, sustainably farmed, and incredibly versatile. I should be all in for this. I should be the poster child. But? But despite all of that, as I had lunch and then dinner, I really saw that aversion barrier at play in myself. Like, when I thought it tasted good, I felt myself sort of feeling, ew, just because it was made of insects. I could get that. Uh, I'm sure it's something you're not alone in. I would probably feel the same way. But what did the public think of it? So for the first three months of the insect experience, they made people fill in surveys and they have collected about 120 so far. They asked people not only about their reactions to the actual meals, but if they had eaten insects before and if the experience had changed their perception. Leah shared some of the responses with me, and most of them were very positive, with one of the most enthusiastic ones being, and I quote, Innovative, customer-friendly, groundbreaking elements combined in a good and healthy food experience. My favorite comment was probably that the ice cream was startling. (laughs) But for the most part, the diners spoke about how the food was an eye-opener or changed their experience. So it's been a really positive experience for us, I guess, and for everyone else as well, because everyone comes in, they're terrified of eating insects, and, you know, they leave with this, like, a completely different mindset about eating insects, which is what we want to do. Looking back now... I can definitely imagine myself getting used to eating insects with more exposure, which is exactly what the pop-up restaurant is doing. Well, it just goes to show you that, as this whole story does, our relationship with food isn't just about what's happening in our mouth. It's also about what's happening in our mind and how much exposure we have to it. Exactly. And how deep those assumptions run. But if someone like Leah can go through such a long process to make something that can change our mind, even my mind, I think it's worth rethinking and seeing if we are sticking to what we know because it really is the best, or is it just the norm? That's Elna Schutz, a journalist in South Africa. If you want to see some pictures of the black soldier fly larvae farm and all the insect-infused food, well, they're up on our website. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. Oh, and one more thing. If you like proof, then be sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review wherever you listen? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is a buggy basil pesto and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Chef Steps, Kohler, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 
I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Molly Birnbaum, and she's the editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Hey, Molly. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You bet. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about America's Test Kitchen Kids? Yeah, for sure. So America's Test Kitchen Kids is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. All of the great, reliable recipes and cooking content of America's Test Kitchen, but reimagined for kids. And we just launched a new Young Chefs Club subscription box. Kids receive a themed box filled with kid-tested recipes, hands-on activities and experiments, and other super fun creative stuff. Sounds great. Can you give me, uh, I don't know, an example of some of the experiments that you might receive in one of those Young Chef Club boxes? I can actually do you one better, Bridget. I've actually brought an assistant with me to the studio today. This is Layla. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Layla. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to explore the science of crispy versus crunchy, two super important textures and two of the most popular food textures for snacks. This is part of a science experiment for our January Young Chefs Club texture box. So we're going to start. You guys both have some chips, classic potato chips and tortilla chips. Do you think you can tell the difference between crispy and crunchy using just your ears, just the sound that you hear when you bite into those chips? Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. All right. Let's get into it. So I'm going to eat the potato chip first. I think this one is crispy. Crispy, why? Because it's more delicate and more, like, easier to break. Okay. Great. Want to try the other one? Yeah. Okay, so this one is the tortilla chip. (laughs) What does that one sound like to you? I think that the tortilla chips were more... um, thick and I think they were crunchy because they sounded like lower pitch in my mouth. Yeah, they sounded like my brothers yelling at each other. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the potato chips sounded crispier because it sounded like more high pitched in my mouth and it sounded like my guinea pig kind of (laughs) like um, squeaking and stuff because it was more high pitched. Yeah, that's totally right. One thing that scientists agree on with crispy and crunchy foods is that they sound different when we eat them. And so you are are right. The potato chip is crispy, whereas the tortilla chip is crunchy. And in the science experiment in the box, we go into that in a bunch of different ways, including measuring the force it takes to break one of these chips. But what scientists have found is that people describe foods that make higher-pitched sounds as crispy and foods that make lower pitch sounds as crunchy. This was great. And thanks, Layla. Thank you to Molly. And if you want to get this experiment and lots of other great recipes and activities for the young chef in your life, well, then head over to atkkids.com proof. Use code ATKKIDS10 at checkout for 10% off your first box. Hey, Layla, what's your favorite chip? Um, which flavor? Any kind. I like salt and vinegar.